So welcome. This is Dr. David Henry with the Journal of Community and Sportive Oncology, and our online site is jcso-online.com. And I'm speaking today with Dr. Joe Carver at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is Chief of Staff at the Abramson Cancer Center and holds the Bernard Fishman Chair of Professor of Medicine. Joe, welcome to this podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. And the reason we're talking today, and I'm so pleased that you're able to join us, is because Dr. Carver is special in two areas which rarely overlap, both cardiology and oncology. And we thought we would talk today about how oncologists talk about, think about the heart and what will we do to people, either the way they have comorbid illness of the heart and then we treat them, or our treatments themselves may cause cardiac issues and how someone like Dr. Carver addresses that. So, so we might begin with radiation therapy and cardiac toxicity. And what was on my mind was we've increasingly have modern techniques. We hear our colleagues in radiation talk about intensity modulated radiation therapy, IMRT, gamma knife, cyber knife, proton therapy, and what that might do to the heart. I'm thinking of the coronary arteries, so the perfusion, the mechanical function, ejection fraction. So, Joe, how would you describe that to a colleague who's worried about radiation, these more modern techniques, and what we need to watch for and how we watch for it with regard to these functions? So it's a, it's a great question. The, uh, the answer about radiation in the heart uh, really has to be divided into two, two different areas. So if you're talking to somebody who has had radiation in the past, the risks, especially in the what we would call the pre-modern era, somewhere that shifted in the 80s, where the heart was blasted and nobody really monitored how much radiation the heart that that population is at an increased risk for multiple different cardiac problems, starting with myocardial dysfunction, uh, it's more restrictive than, than congestive, uh, valvular disease, coronary artery disease, and pericardial disease, as well as um, arrhythmias and conduction problems. So a typical uh, example, is I take care of uh, a bunch of people, but someone who had Hodgkin's disease uh, in her teens uh, got mediastinal mantle radiation, and then over the years, from a cardiac standpoint, 15 to 25 years later, has a pacemaker, a coronary artery disease, an extent, and, and recently had two valves replaced, so aortic and mitral valve replacement um, because of uh, because of radiation, late radiation effects. So that's, that's the old days. Uh, in the modern world, and I also should say that the, the statistics of how frequently that stuff occurs, uh, it's hard to apply them if you're sitting with a patient today who's about to begin radiation therapy because of the techniques that you described um, in question. There's so much better now, so this is less with, common with forward and breath-holding techniques and position position uh, you know, doing upright uh, radiation rather than supine 
it and because the technology has improved both in the delivery of radiation and the technology in understanding where all the radiation is going, that uh, I think in today's world, we can calculate pretty precisely how much radiation the heart actually receives and ultimately uh, with the protective mechanisms that are in place going forward, the risks that I described for that survivor are, are probably exponentially less than what's reported in the literature and what we see clinically. So I think that radiation has become much, much safer. There is still probably some small risk of development of, of late changes, uh, but I don't think we know what that risk is today because, because of kind of the techniques that and I think I've even seen, of course, the patient's breathing, and there'll be some movement of the target, so the some of the radiation techniques can follow the target despite the breathing. Yeah, I mean, definitely true, and I think that, uh, and again, with IMRT and protons, that you can really avoid a lot of. I think that you know, classically. Radiation, if you read any textbook, uh, it says that for the coronaries, that it's osteal and proximal disease or the left main or, or the left anterior descending or the, the right coronary artery. Um, the anatomy of, of disease going forward is more like for somebody who gets mediastinal radiation, either breast or, or lymphoma or mediastinal tumor, that it's more likely to, be, to mimic classic coronary disease and not be so proximal to be in the mid-portion of the LAD rather than at the, the osteum. So it's, a, it's going to be a different disease going forward. Well, that's, that's in, incredible and great progress. If we then switch from radiation to chemotherapy, now, of course, all of us worry about and very familiar with the toxicity potential of things like doxorubicin, trastuzumab. And I remembered an ASCO a few years ago, one of the speakers was a cardiologist and was advising us that perhaps the ejection fraction, albeit uh, readily available and somewhat reproducible, was probably too simple and we should maybe watch more closely with other techniques. And then my, and I'll let you comment, is I thought I recalled five of few infusions, which we do in some of our colorectal cancers, for example, can cause a vasospasm, Prince metals type angina from time to time, and is that true in Zolota? So what are your thoughts on how to follow the doxorubicin and trastuzumab and anything about five of few and its analogs? Okay, this is like a, <laughs> this is a, it's a large, question. It's a large so, question, yeah. So I think that um, although the classic teaching about anthracyclines is that it's dose-related and, and related to the cumulative dosing of the drug, that um, there's a, a clear, large individual variation. And I've seen um, sarcoma patients who've gotten close to a gram or gotten close to 1,000 milligrams uh, per meter squared uh, without cardiac function and some people really? with minimal exposure um, have full-blown cardiomyopathy. 
So I think one of the protective strategies that we we developed over the years is to give less drug uh, and get and and with that get the same result. So there is definitely a risk um, for anthracyclines. It probably were full-blown heart failure. It's probably in the four to eight percent range. It's not as high, and that's cumulative lifetime. It's not as high as um, as we once thought. As we once thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, and what people thought about how high, that it was a high percentage, even in the classic Van Hoff curve, which first you know, first described uh, doxorubicin cardiomyopathy, that the incidence rates, even before you get to 450 milligrams on the curve, takes a, a giant swing upward. Um, it is in less than 1% for, for the curve at the bottom before the jump. So it's not as it's not as bad as we often thought. It, that doesn't mean it, it isn't there, but it's uh, relatively speaking from the standpoint of benefits of anthracyclines, it, uh, the benefits certainly we outweigh the cardiac risk. So at the anthracyclines, and we try to do whatever protective thing that we can do. So uh, there's some people who believe that continuous is better than bolus. Uh, mm -hmm. It's pretty controversial. Uh, dextrazoxone, which is a, a, a chelating agent, uh, has been shown to reduce cardiotoxicity using uh, olipophilic, uh, you know, liposomal preparation of doxorubicin has less cardiotoxicity than. Yeah, I, I'm a true believer in that. I have a population where a lot of liposomal doxorubicin is used, and I've given a lot, and rarely, if ever, get cardiac toxicity. So you're agreeing with you see that as well? Yeah, I think that um, there's a financial difference between doxorubicin sure. the, and liposomal doxorubicin, but from the standpoint of the safety, I think from the standpoint of bioavailability, doxorubicin, I would probably Jumpuzumab, what do you think? Um, of course, I think we are getting echoes every nine weeks. Is that seems awful simple, but there's a whole uh, nomogram or algorithm we follow to a particular change injection fraction, watch the drug or stop the drug. Are yeah, we doing so, that correctly? So I think that the first statement I would make about that is that, that there are too many women who need Trastuzumab, whose therapy has stopped because of just looking at the ejection fraction. So that it's uh, there has to be more to make decision making than just the ejection fraction. And that uh, you were pretty aggressive at at ten to uh, try to get women to get the full dose and whatever dose of effective dose they need to, to especially with curative, curative adjuvant attempt, that, uh, that we, we make decisions based not only on the ejection fraction. So we also have, uh, I would say, a handful of our medical breast oncologists uh, who uh, don't follow the package insert. Mm -hmm. 
that we get, we don't get ejection fractions uh, every every three cycles. Uh, that uh, we have uh, substituted a little bit by following biomarkers, so that uh, we use uh, NT Pro BNP to monitor people either with each cycle or every third cycle, and um, the benefit of BNP is that. Uh, for its negative predictive value, so that if it's normal, it's hard to have any clinically significant myocardial dysfunction. I think that what we're going to see over, I would hope, the next year or two is that the recommendations about um, getting echocardiograms uh, frequently will go away. Well, that would be a welcome because because we're in our electronic medical records since nine weeks. Stop. Do this. And how about um, a comment on infusional 5-FU and possibly its cousins like capecitabine and any coronary issues? Yeah. So let me come back. Just one more thing about trastuzumab. And, sure. And I think that uh, um, So you think the end to the pro BNP might be useful, and I know that's excreted by the kidneys, so that might rise in renal failure, but we can adjust for that. Yeah, so I think that, again, it, the negative predictive value of having a normal BNP is, is helpful. I think what I wanted to say was that, uh, and I think you and I may have already had a preliminary conversation about this, is that, um, that screening echoes and looking at ejection fraction and low-risk populations probably is not, not it's clearly not cost-effective, and it probably mm -hmm. never alters decision-making. If you have a, yeah. a you know, a 30-year-old a person uh, with no cardiac risk factors and no past history who develops B-cell lymphoma uh, and is going to get anthracycline-based chemotherapy, the likelihood of finding a, a reason not to give that therapy based on, very small. on an echo is small. I would even go further and say close to zero. Mm -hmm. and, and we've, we've begun to kind of look at this. I mean, there is, a, there is literature out there that supports the concept uh, and that, uh, that in low-risk people, if you can define the low-risk population in an accurate way, I think that for lymphoma patients, for women with breast cancer, um, getting their anthracyclines or trastuzumab that were or the other uh, anti-HER2 therapies, that uh, there's probably a little yield to even getting a baseline, a baseline study. Very, very interesting. I, I would agree with you. And then on to the 5-FU and it's... So uh, talk about 5-FU quickly. Yeah. The 5-FU thing has uh, become a passion of mine um, that we've, um, over the last, uh, I guess, two to two and a half years, uh, have gotten very aggressive uh, with uh, treating coronary spasm that's induced by the fluoropyrimidines. So that's 5-FU and, and capecitabine, the oral version. Uh, yeah, there is an incidence that probably is uh, 
um, the literature says less than 1%. It's probably somewhere between 3 and 5%. I think it's a little bit more more common than has been reported. And, uh, and the, the reason is that the, the way that it presents uh, as classically presented in the literature is different than, than what, what occurs uh, in real life. So, um, yeah, so it, it is a phenomena. Um, it's the, the, the most common cardiac side effect. And, and it, it sometimes is spasm, sometimes it's small vessel spasm. And, uh, and, uh, and you can see chest pain with no ECG changes, ECG changes without chest pain, uh, so-called silent, you know, silent ischemia. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. and, and it doesn't always sound like classic angina, but it's clearly related to temporarily to getting the drug. And then we've uh, developed a protocol uh, to treat documented spasm uh, as an outpatient uh, to be able to continue uh, those drugs uh, to their, their logical conclusion from an oncologic standpoint. In fact, we just submitted a manuscript to the American Journal of Cardiology describing our experience and, uh, and uh, the, the algorithm of how we treat people. So um, it's a real phenomenon. We're, I mean, I think, uniquely aggressive in rechallenging patients who've had spasm. Sure, that would be suddenly careful. And um, then finally, it occurred to me that, you know, we cause problems, radiation, we cause problems, chemotherapy, and other infusions. Are there particular cancers that you think of, or you're called in to see with uh, our oncology colleagues, do you worry cardiac involvement or their location, cardiac involvement? Um, what comes to mind is cases I've had where there's pericardial involvement and tamponade. I, I sadly had a case that was very, went very badly, or constricted pericarditis. So any heart effects of tumors that worry? Yeah, so we see uh, metastatic disease to the pericardium with breast cancer, lung cancer, uh, lymphoma. Uh, renal cell has an interesting predilection to go to the pericardium. Uh, and then we've seen in the last probably, I guess, six months, two cases of bladder cancer with pericardial metastasis. Mm -hmm. The literature, uh, when we reviewed it, there are like nine or ten case reports so it's something that uh, if you're a filial carcinoma that uh, goes to the pericardium. So yeah, it's uh, it is a, a phenomena that uh, is real, and I think because people live longer and have more different sites, more more chances of different chemotherapeutic regimen that uh, with it more time for metastatic disease to occur. So it is a it is common phenomenon, and we always joke that, that uh, at 4 o'clock on Friday, we will see somebody who has tamponade. Right, right, of course. Yeah, so we see a lot of a lot of pericardial disease. Uh, and then the other whole area that, that, that is concern are the, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors and, uh, and hypertension, which is... Uh, of course, yes. Yeah. Very, very common that we've become 
nurses and the oncologists to recognize the importance of, of being able to follow up and treat blood pressures to allow patients to get these treatments. And I guess we couldn't end without talking about checkpoint inhibitors and the recent uh, lay press flurry about uh, about myocarditis and uh, yeah, I see. I haven't personally experienced that, but I've seen those reports. How this is your thing? How common is that? And how do we watch for it? Yeah, so I think that I have personally have seen probably four or five people um, that were referred because of heart failure on checkpoint inhibitors. And for each of them, there was either Historically, something that was prehistoric—it was, you know, it was a pre-existing problem before the checkpoint inhibitor, and, and that it was sort of coincident that with with either fluid changes or blood pressure changes associated with the treatment that that they had a flare-up of a heart failure. We have not seen, fortunately, the uh, dynamics that were reported in the New England Journal people with with just rampant uh, failure, um, incessant ventricular arrhythmias and, and death. We have not seen that. But I think so there's, we would probably, like, there's probably some signal that may act, act as a cofactor. And then we, we've actually joined in a registry with the, the guys at Vanderbilt to, uh, to try to understand this a little bit better. Well, certainly with the proliferation of the checkpoint inhibitors and so many different tumors and so much widespread use, uh, looks to be like there is a small safety signal there, but still yet to be defined That's how actually, common and, and what to watch for. But yeah, actually, uh, it's serendipitous that yesterday uh, I was walking to the parking lot uh, with one of the nurse practitioners who uh, takes care of the melanoma population. Yeah. And she said to me, do you think that we should be getting BNPs on everybody who's <laughs> getting a checkpoint inhibitor? So I don't think that we're there. I think just the awareness to ask the right questions when, when you see the people and to, uh, before starting, say, is this somebody who, in the absence of a checkpoint inhibitor, could be at risk for, for myocardial disease? And to recognize that and then to to use the cardiolog community to work together and try to um, make sure that, that you do whatever cardioprotective thing that you can do and to honor them a little bit closely. But I'm not sure that everybody who's going to start a checkpoint inhibitor needs um, a cardiac evaluation, doesn't need an echo, doesn't need uh, baseline biomarkers to, to decide if there's a problem. Well, certainly you raised my awareness. It's not something I had been thinking of with checkpoint inhibitors, but I certainly would, if the patient has some comorbid illness that involves the heart, maybe think about it and, and want, wait to see how these reports develop and what you and the registry do. Okay, so well, I'm sure that you've seen people um, who get this sort of immunologic reaction 
steroids for fluid accumulation, rash, or other things that are in this constellation of stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if that group might have some subclinical myocarditis that just gets better when they get treated for the other stuff. So we've, uh -huh. we have actually uh, been trying to do a handheld portable echo machine called the peak scan. Mm -hmm. it, this size, it's not much bigger than, than the larger cell phones that are available. And, uh, and we've been going to the bedside. People have the reaction of sticking the transducer to see, get a gestalt of what the ventricle looks like. But I, there's, there's a lot. It's a fertile ground to the uh, for investigation. Well, I think I couldn't ask you to end on a higher note than the covering the checkpoint inhibitors, which are so popular and I think so interesting and exciting and used everywhere. So we're still managing that whole concept. So I want to thank you very much. I think we've covered an awful lot. And I'll draw this to a close by reminding everyone that I'm Dr. David Henry with the Journal of Community and Supportive Oncology whose website where this interview will be is jcso-online.com. And I've been delighted to be speaking with Dr. Joe Carver at the University of Pennsylvania Abramson Cancer Center, where he is chief of staff at the Cancer Center and the Bernard Fishman Professor of Medicine. Joe, thank you very much. All right, it was a great pleasure.